Hi, this is Jim Stein, your host for New Books in Physics. Our guest today is John Gribben, the author of Six Impossible Things, The Mystery of the Quantum World. Frankly, although there have been a number of good books on quantum mechanics, this is my favorite. The book details the central mystery of quantum mechanics and outlines several interpretations that have been proposed. I've never seen these interpretations so clearly and succinctly stated, and I'd recommend it to anyone who wants to understand how physicists have tried to come to grips with one of the universe's most perplexing mysteries. John, welcome to the show. Welcome, indeed. I'm I'm very flattered by this introduction. I hope I can live up to it. I'm sure you will. John, what motivated you to write this book? Well, it's been a long time brewing. I've I've been writing about quantum physics for many years, I mean, even many decades, and I get increasingly frustrated with uh, the way some people accept these ideas as as, as some deep truth. And what they're really telling us is that we don't really understand what's going on. So they're they're kind of cover up uh, for for our our misunderstanding and our ignorance. uh, And and that's why I I would treat them as impossible things. uh, And I regard them as what I call the, the quanta of solace. You know, we we take solace in something we don't understand by pretending we understand it. Um, Why have physicists been unable to come up with common sense interpretations for a collection of equations that work beautifully to describe quantum phenomena? Well, the mystery is why that we, we don't have an explanation. And the obvious answer is that it's because we're missing something. There may be a, a, a deeper truth to what's going on uh, than anything we've discovered. And the fact that we found the equations doesn't mean that we have an understanding in, in a, a physical sense. Um, there was a, a saying which, which started going around quite early on in this process when students started questioning their teachers about uh, how could all this stuff be true and why did the equations work they were told shut up and calculate use the equations don't worry what they mean uh, and this is a, a little bit like you know if, if if you learn about gravity and it's an inverse square law you can calculate the orbit of the planets you can calculate the trajectory to send a rocket to mars but then you ask why is it an inverse square law? And and Newton himself, who came up with the idea, didn't know. He he famously said uh, in Latin, but translated into English, I don't make hypotheses. I'm not offering an explanation. Well, it took a couple of hundred years for Albert Einstein to come along and come up with an explanation and curved space time and black holes and all of that stuff. So the suspicion is that some future Einstein is going to come up with something and we then all smack ourselves on the forehead and say, oh, of course, that explains why these equations work. But as of now, we don't know why. I just hope I'm around for that. Um, Anyway, I think quantum mechanics starts with the double slit experiment. What is the double slit experiment and how does it illustrate wave particle duality? Now, this is the classic mystery. It, it, it sums it all up in a nutshell. Uh, we think about waves as being things like water waves, and you can see ripples on a pond, and if you drop two pebbles into a very still pond at the same time, you can see the ripples spreading out and literally interfering with one another, and they make what's called an interference pattern. And you could do the same thing with, among other things, with light. You shine a light through two small holes. Um, they may be slits or they may be little pinpricks in, in a screen in a dark room or a laboratory. And the light spreads out and it makes a pattern of light and shade on another screen on the other side of the room or whatever it might be. And that proves, insofar as it means anything, that light is traveling as a wave. But you can do other experiments which prove that light travels like a particle, as photons. And crucially, the thing that really blows your mind, you can do the double slit experiment with electrons. And you can shoot electrons through a a device called an electron gun. You use electricity rather than slits in screens, but you do the same job. You send an electron on a path through two screens and onto the other side where there's a detector, a bit like a TV screen, which makes a flash every time one of these electrons arrives. And if you shoot a beam of electrons through, they're particles leaving this gun, but on the other side, they make a pattern of, of light and shade on the screen, which proves they're waves. Worst of all, you can fire the electrons one at a time. You can leave a gap between them, you know, a long time, milliseconds, which is a long time in the quantum world. And you fire them through one at a time. 
Each one goes through the two slits somehow, one or the other slit, you might think, but maybe you're wrong. It arrives at the screen and makes one spot of light, one electron, one spot of light. You do this with 10,000 electrons, one after the other, and the pattern you get on the other side is the pattern for waves. Their particles are behaving like waves. They also know where the other particles are, and they're building up a pattern over time as if they were a load of things going through the screen all at once. It's very mysterious. You know, you discuss early in your book three critical experiments in this area, and maybe you could discuss them now. There was one in the 1970s, one in the 1980s, and one about five years ago. Well, the, the first people who did this, they, they did the, the basic experiment with a, a lot of electrons going through the screen and building up the pattern. And then the next people uh, did an experiment where it was the one I've just described, where you fire the electrons one at a time and the pattern builds up. So the electrons seem to know what's happened in the past and the future, as well as what the electrons next door are doing. And then the last experiment is really, really subtle, and it's something which um, Richard Feynman, way back in the 60s, he, he discussed, as he discussed many things in quantum physics, and he dreamed up this beautiful experiment, which he said, nobody will ever be able to do this. It, it's too fantastic. And then somebody 50 years later did do it. And this involves having your screen on a very tiny scale, you know, a sub-microscopic scale, you've got two little holes, two slits, and you've got a slider which is moved by magnetic forces to and fro so you can open and close it. And basically what they do is while the electrons are on the way, they open or close it computer opens or close it so that they know if there's one slit it ought to behave like particles going through one hole if there's two slits it ought to behave like waves going through two holes but how does it know which slit is open and which slit is closed and they've done this with experiments moving these little tiny shutters to and fro on you know tiny fractions of a second while the electron's flying through space so the electron doesn't know what's going on when it's not looking if you like and still you find if you've got two slits open, you get a wave pattern. If you've got one slit open, you get a particle pattern. Something very strange is going on here. Astounding. Um, what role does probability play in quantum theory? Probability is, is it's, it's both very important and you can think of it as a kind of a red herring because the, the classic interpretation, the, these ideas are all called interpretations because we don't really know what's going on. So we make up a story and that's the interpretation. And the, the one that kicked our things off and started the ball rolling in the 1920s is called the Copenhagen interpretation because a, a lot of the ideas came from Niels Bohr, who was a Danish physicist based in that city. Um, but the probability came in from another guy. Max Born, not Bohr, who, who introduced this idea of probability. And this says that if you have something going on in the quantum world, anything at all, that you can't say with certain what's going to happen. You, you say that there's a, a certain probability, an exactly calculatable mathematical probability that it will do A or it will do B. And, and the simplest example of this is we, we've often heard about the idea of the half-life of a radioactive substance, that if you've got a, a, a pile of uranium or radium or whatever it might be, that half the atoms will decay they'll change into something else in a certain time so in in that half-life if you start with a, a pound of stuff after one half-life you've got half a pound left and then in the next half-life half of that half pound goes and you're left with a quarter then an eighth and so on but you can never point at one atom and say hey this atom's going to go next or this atom's going to not go for 10,000 years, you can never say, all you can say is there's a 50-50 probability that this particular atom will decay, will change in a certain time. And the probabilities apply to all these things. They apply to the supposed waves going through the double slits and so on. And you can say there's a probability that the electron's going to arrive at point A on the screen on the other side. And there's another probability that it will arrive at point B, but you can't point at any one electron before it sets off on its journey and say, oh, this one's going to go to A and this one's going to go to B. You just don't know. So it's it's all related to the idea that we hear about of uncertainty and not being able to make predictions in quantum physics, except in some kind of statistical sense. What is superposition? <laughs> well, 
this is related to probability too. You, you have a, a, a quantum thing. I mean, I, I, you don't like to use words like particle or wave, so thing or a quantum entity or whatever it might be. And, and again, take a very, very simple example. Electrons have a property that we call spin. Now, it's not like spin in the everyday sense, like the, the Earth spinning round or if you, you know, put spin on a pool ball and make it whiz around the table. But it, you can think of it as kind of like something that points upwards or points downwards and an electron that's made in um, a, a nuclear decay the kind of thing i was talking about sometimes an atom the nucleus of an atom will spit out an electron and that electron will have a, you think a definite spin but the theory says and experiments seem to confirm that it doesn't have the spin until you measure it so it's in what's called the superposition it's it's got this mixture of being pointing up and pointing down at the same time until something happens it bumps into another particle or you you look at it with some you know super microscope and only at that point does it decide oh yeah right i'm pointing upwards and my other electron over here is pointing downwards so so it's not real in some sense until it's measured or in the experiment with two holes until it hits the screen on the other side. What did Einstein call spooky action at a distance? Right. Well, well, this is related to superposition. Um, now, you, you can you actually have things. He talked about experiments involving photons and particles of light, but it's simpler to think in terms of electrons. And I should say these experiments have now been done. I mean, much more complicated than simple description sounds like, but they've really been done. You can imagine a situation where an atom spits out two electrons in opposite directions. Okay, so you're you're balancing off um, you know, momentum, all those things we learned about in school. You know, momentum and energy are all in balance. They're going in opposite directions, and the laws of quantum physics say that you've got two electrons. You've got to balance the laws of spin. So one must be up and one must be down. But hey. I just told you that it doesn't know. It's in a superposition. So you've got these two electrons flying off, you know, miles away, maybe light years away, the other side of the universe, and they're each one in a superposition. As soon as somebody looks at one of them, measures them, hits another atom, then it has to, for want of a better word, decide if it's spin up or spin down. The moment that electron is set in one way, the other electron miles away on the other side of the universe wherever it is at that moment the other electron becomes the opposite so electron a is spin up so without anyone looking at it anyone knowing about it the other one becomes spin down and that's what einstein called spooky action at a distance and he said this is impossible it's clearly nonsense so quantum mechanics must be wrong and then 30 years later uh, 40 years later, people came along and devised an experiment, a very, very subtle and clever experiment, which basically measured this. And it says, no, these things, even though they're separated from one another, they do have some kind of knowledge about each other. The spooky action at a distance really happens. Uh, and Einstein was very definitely wrong in this case, though perhaps fortunately he, he didn't live to hear, hear and see about this. Um, I think when you talk about the electron on, electrons on the opposite sides of the universe and them knowing about each other, you're talking about entanglement. And when you're talking about what Einstein felt was probably that there must be a deeper explanation, is that hidden variables? Well, this is one of the options. Uh, this is this is this whole package, you know, um, entanglement, uh, spooky action at a distance, superposition. You can't separate them. They're all part of a package. And how you get into the story depends on which avenue you come into. And one of the, the three impossible ideas uh, that, that I discuss is called hidden variables. And it says that um, there's something going on at a deeper level that we don't understand and that the particles entities, whatever you want to call them, but they, they really are in some sense set earlier in, in one being up and one being down because of these things that are called hidden variables, uh, which, which affect what's going on. But there's a very peculiar thing about this. To, to make hidden variables work, you have to have another kind of wave, a, a field, as physicists call it, which fills the whole universe. And that is what tells the particles what to do. So, Instead of having something which is not sure if it's a wave or a particle, you've got a wave and you've got a particle. 
and the wave tells the particle what to do. And so it tells it that this one's got to be up and that one's got to be down. And so that's that's all fine and dandy. But the problem with this then is that the particles don't have any influence on the wave. And this sort of flies in the face of, of everything else we've ever learned about physics. Again, going back to Newton, you know, we all learned action and reaction are equal and opposite. If the wave affects the particle, surely the particle must affect the wave. So hidden variables sounds great. You know, you say there's some kind of clockwork going on and we don't know what the clockwork is but then why don't the things we do affect the clockwork you know why doesn't it speed up slow down why doesn't it stop ticking you know what's what's going on down there so it's not as satisfactory as it seems at first sight what was john bell's contribution to this right well bell's the guy who who put um the spooky action at a distance business into uh, a set of equations basically i mean einstein and his colleagues talked about this in general terms and they said you know it's common sense that these particles don't know about each other uh, and nobody will ever be able to test it that was the, the thought they had in the 1930s 40s 50s and then john bell came along uh, he was uh, a, a genius guy who worked at the particle physics laboratory at cern in geneva and he was fascinated by all this stuff and he'd been there a few years and he'd earned a sabbatical and so he got to go to the states and uh, visit various places for a year and work on anything he wanted to do he, he didn't have to work on particle accelerators that was his, his day job uh, and so he buckled down and he looked at all this stuff and he looked at Einstein's work and other work and he actually devised a test to find out if the spooky action at a distance, the entanglement really happens in, in the world we live in. Uh, and he worked out a, 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 a Again, just as a kind of what they call a thought experiment, you know, imagining what could be done, that if it was possible to do certain things with with actually with particles of light, with photons, with some going in one direction and some in another. And again, using statistics, you'd have to count in effect, count the number of electrons pointing up and the number of electrons pointing down in a run of you know hundreds of tests using using atomic experiments. And he said it, that there's a number in here. And if number A is bigger than number B, then we know that Einstein was right and there's no entanglement, there's no spooky action at a distance. But if number B is bigger than number A, then we know that Einstein was wrong. But he, he didn't expect anyone to do this. And only 10 years later, in, in the 1970s, the first experiments were done, which, which seemed to, to give a, 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 an indication um, that Einstein was wrong. Number, number B was bigger than number A. And then over the, the eight, 1980s, the, the experiments got refined until now it's absolutely rock solid fundamental part of science and um, that, that what's called bell's inequality uh is is the right way up for for einstein to be wrong if that, that doesn't sound too confusing to you the the universe really is built in with entanglement and spooky action at a distance and the great thing about this what what's called bell's test uh the great thing about bell's test is that it doesn't actually depend on quantum physics now a lot of people don't understand this they don't realize they think it's it's a proof that quantum physics um violates common sense but what he's actually telling us is that the universe violates common sense even if it turned out, you know, God forbid, that quantum physics is completely wrong, the fact that we've done an experiment and the experiment has come out with Bell's inequality the way up it's come out, that proves that, that this is built into the universe, that, that things that are widely separated from one another do in some sense influence one another if, if they ever had an interaction in the past. And this is much deeper even than, than quantum physics. You know, it's, it's, it's getting into the realms of philosophy and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's pretty impressive. Um, there's a term that I've seen, quantum tele teleportation. <laughs> what is it? Right. Now, th this is... Um, it's kind of like teleportation, but uh, it's it's not really physically taking a particle, let alone you know, a human being, from one place and copying them somewhere else. What you can do, um, we scientists, not me, but, but people can do now as a matter of routine, is they can use a kind of a glorified um, Bell experiment. They can 
take all the information that's contained in a, a particle of light, a photon, and transfer it to another photon somewhere else. So the, the information about the first photon is destroyed in the process. So it's just as if you took a photon from place A to place B, though it's actually a different photon that's over there, but it's identical to the one you started out with. And this is something that's been built up dramatically in, in recent years. And even while I was writing my book, you know, the, 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 the news was coming in of more developments. They started doing this across the lab, you know, five metres away. You could you could make a photon disappear here and an identical photon appear over there. Then they did it, um, and they did it actually in Switzerland. They used uh, telephone wires um, in in the, the 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 Swiss telephone network to, um, as they call it, teleport a photon from one laboratory to another laboratory on the other side of Geneva. And then they got to do it in the open air, and and it's now been done between two islands in the Canary Islands um, off, off the coast of Africa. Um, they, they've actually done it across a distance of, of many kilometres. And then so far, the, the, the crowning achievement is Chinese scientists have done it from space. They've actually been able to teleport photons from a satellite in orbit down to a ground station on the ground. So they're, they're taking all the information that's in a photon and they're putting it into photons on the ground. And this has got huge implications for communications, for the security of communications, because partly because you destroy the information that you started out with. It's a way of sending very secure messages because anybody who tries to intercept it and read what's going on will scramble it all up. So, so they'll get no information and then the people on the ground will know it's been scrambled up. So they'll know that, that someone's been trying to interfere. And so this is commercial potential. There's a lot of money going into it. It obviously it's got military and, and political implications as well. So this is a, a huge rapidly developing area today. Absolutely fascinating. You know, you described probability theory a little earlier as one of the mathematical methods of describing quantum theory. Um, I believe there are two. What's the other one? And is there any reason to prefer one or the other? <laughs> well, the, the, the key difference, um, the, 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 the one that it is seen as a rival to, to the probability theory. I mean, I think probably you're referring to the many worlds or, or multiverse idea and that instead of saying in the simplest possible case, a, a, an electron has got a choice of going through in the double slit experiment, it can go through slit A or it can go through slit B and what happens afterwards depends on which one it goes through. You say that, no, there are two universes and in one universe it goes through slit A and in another universe it goes through slit B. So you don't have to worry about probability, but instead for every possible probability you have in every possible quantum event anywhere in the universe, you, you've got another universe. And that uh, is, is what people have sometimes called the, the excess baggage interpretation because they, they can't accept that um, you can have so many universes. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm, I, I try very hard to be agnostic and not say which ones I think are good and which ones I think are bad so that readers can choose for themselves. Um, but, you know, is that really any crazier than the idea that, um, for instance, you know, the chair I'm sitting on is actually mostly empty space and, it's, and the atoms are empty space with electric forces holding them apart. You know, maybe 100 years time, people will think this is common sense. Um, one of the famous experiments that I've read about is uh, the proposal by John Archibald Wheeler for the delayed choice experiment. Yeah. What is it and what conclusions can we reach from it? This is extremely controversial. Um, people uh, argue about it immensely in, in the sort of quantum physics groups. But the, the, the point comes back to these little experiments that I talked about with the electrons going through tiny, tiny holes and when you open the shutters and close the shutters. And it's down to the particles, the electrons, the photons, whatever they are, deciding what they are, if you like, at the point you measure them. Now, you can imagine, and John Wheeler was imagining, but since then, our telescopes have got so good that we can see it. Light from a very, very distant object, you know, the things you may have heard of called quasars, far away on the other side of the universe, coming towards us from literally from billions of light years away, sometimes 
on its way to us. It passes very near to a, a cluster of galaxies, a, a really massive concentration of matter, which has a strong gravitational pull. And because of the strong gravitational pull, the light can be bent one way or the other around the cluster of galaxies. So it's kind of like a, a sort of cosmic double slit experiment because there are two ways for the light to get to us. Now, the, the light coming to us, if you could needing something a little bit better than we've got yet but you know in principle possible if you could take the light coming from both sides and we can see this we can see two images of, of some of these quasars if you could combine it and do the interference like the waves interfering you'd expect that you'd be able to make an interference pattern and that would in quotes prove that light is a wave but what wheeler pointed out is that if you look at the, at the light before it has a chance to make an interference pattern, you'll find it's a particle. You get the equivalent of a, of a spot on a screen. But this light, you know, is either going to make an interference pattern, it's either going to be a wave, or it's not. It's going to be a particle. And yet it's come from billions of light years away, and the massive source in between that's being the gravitational lens, that might be a couple of billion light years away from us. And yet at the very moment, you sitting in your lab, you know, with your finger over the buttons on your computer, say, oh, shall I make it a particle or shall I make it a wave? You go, bomb, you press the button, it becomes a wave or it becomes a particle. What was it doing for 10 billion years on the journey? You know, does what you're doing now affect what happened back at the beginning of the universe? That's that's the so it's called the delayed choice experiment. It's never been done. It's the delayed choice mystery, if you like. It's probably a better word. Um, but according to what we know about quantum physics, what happens to that light particle or wave will depend on the measurement we choose to make now, uh, even even though it's been traveling all that time and all that distance to get to us. Um, I should tell listeners that uh, John's book has the various different interpretations of quantum mechanics. And I don't think we're going to get to all of them in this interview <laughs> because <laughs> that, but here's what you can do. You can read the book. It's a lot of fun. Um, one of the interpretations is de Broglie's pilot wave explanation yeah. of duality. Can you tell us a little about that? Well, this is really the, uh, it, it's both the, improved version of um the, the the underlying reality idea that that, that i mentioned earlier that, that that there is some clockwork and waves and particles both exist and it's also the original idea and it's an interesting story because it um it shows how physicists are influenced by fashion and by um, prestige you know just just like people in in other fields of, of life are um de Broglie was was one of the clever guys who came up with um the basic ideas of quantum physics in the 1920s and he um started out from einstein's work which had showed that that light is not just a wave it's a particle as well or either or depending on what you choose to measure and he said well if um, what we used to think was a wave can actually be a particle, maybe what we used to think was a particle, electrons, can also be a wave. And then he did more than just think about it in, in those terms. He did the calculations and worked out the equations and all the rest of it. And he was the man who proved that electrons can be both wave and particle. And that then led to a whole load of experiments and, and, and things which, which helped to develop um, quantum mechanics and he was puzzled like everybody else about how this could be and so he was the first person who actually said there could be both a particle and a wave and he presented this at a, a major scientific meeting at the end, the end of the 1920s and also at that meeting was this guy Niels Bohr that I mentioned and that was the meeting where he presented his Copenhagen interpretation saying that it's all probabilities and nothing decides what it is until you measure it and he was a the, the big man in science you know at that time he was he was a top dog and he was very forceful and de Broglie was he, he was pretty good but you know he he wasn't the same kind of aggressively famous top dog that Niels Bohr was. He was a bit more diffident. He presented his ideas. He didn't, like, go out to bat for them. He just said, well, this is a good idea. What do you guys think? And everybody was overwhelmed by Bohr. And so they said, no, it's rubbish. Bohr's right. And then 
years later, other people came along and developed the same kind of idea. And then they had a look at what had been published in scientific journals and so on. And they said, oh, no, De Bruyne said this, you know, back in the 1920s. Maybe he wasn't so crazy after all. So... You know, fashions come and fashions go. The, the the Copenhagen interpretation, which, without giving too much away, I think is probably the worst of, of all the six ideas that I discuss in the book. Uh, that is still taught uh, at a basic level. If you're starting out at, you know, university, um, then you, you're probably going to get taught quantum physics that way. And then later on, you'll find, oh, no, there are several other ways of looking at it maybe it's not right after all uh, and it's a great pity that, that that this still holds sway because it it's, it's a very feeble way of, of trying to explain things you know i think one of the things that outsiders to uh the science to the science uh world don't seem to realize is that personalities do play a role in it certain mm. ideas do dominate for periods of time as a result that they because they have the strong the people who are the strongest proponents on their side like in this instance and the fortunate thing is that at least science gets the opportunity to get it right by doing experiments that's absolutely crucial yeah i mean it, it's um this is why this particular area keeps sort of bubbling along so long because uh, th- all the experiments do is they they tell us that the quantum physics is right um, but they don't tell us why it's right as we said at the beginning of this discussion uh, and so that that there's a lot of scope for fashions to come and go um but i, I in a similar way something i I used to work in cosmology many years ago and that there was a big debate in, in, in those days about the, the big bang idea and the steady state theory, you know, and people would sort of go at each other, hammer and tongs and say, I'm right and you're wrong and say, no, you're wrong and I'm right. And, and as you say, the beauty is we were then able to, to do experiments or the, the equivalent of experiments, make observations put up satellites, measure the radiation from the Big Bang and say, well, you know, whether you love the steady state theory or not, you're you're out of luck because we can tell you that, that the Big Bang theory is a better version. I, I always hesitate to say right, you know, say one, one, one idea is better than another one. Maybe a better one still is going to come along one day, like Einstein with the general theory of relativity being better than Newton's theory of gravity. You know, Newton's not wrong, but this is a better theory. Uh, and and the fascinating thing for me is that it's actually very hard to sort of point your finger at any of these quantum ideas and say, well, this one is the best, you know, let alone the right one. You, you, you can say, well, you know, I like this one. And then another day you might look and say, well, I, actually, I quite like this one as well. So there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of debate, and, and it, it makes life very exciting. What is Mark's principle? Hmm. Well, this is... Um, uh, sort of brings in cosmology and quantum physics. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, That's quite okay. It's uh, it, it's related to this idea of spooky action at distance and entanglement and so on, because what quantum physics is telling us is that things that are widely separated have an influence on each other. Now this is something that puzzled people back in Newton's day, um, that that not not in terms of particles and quantum physics, but in terms of a big lumps of matter that we can see and the universe out there. Now, you know, we all know about inertia. You know, if you push something, it doesn't want to be pushed, quite apart from friction. You know, if you're in space and you're an astronaut, you've got to push something to make it move, and then it keeps moving until it gets another knock. Well, this is what it's moving relative to is the whole universe. If you if you measure what do you have to move something relative to in order to feel inertia, it's everything in the universe. What Newton would have regarded as the average of all the stars in the universe. And now we think of the average of all the galaxies in the universe. And he, he showed in, a, in a, an experiment that you can actually do for yourself, um, that this is something that is to do with what's going on out in the world at large, um, with a bucket of water. It's as simple as that. If you have a bucket of water and you hang it from a rope and you twist the bucket up round the rope and then let go, the bucket starts spinning. But at first, the water doesn't start spinning and it stays flat. But then it picks up through friction. It picks up the rotation of the bucket. And as it moves, the water then develops this dip in the middle. It gets, it gets a flattened, uh, the, the flat surface gets, gets curved. 
and then you grab the bucket to stop it moving. The bucket stops, but the water's still moving and it carries on moving and having this dip in the surface. And as it slows down, the surface gets flat again. So the, the, the water in the bucket doesn't care whether it's moving relative to the bucket or relative to the walls of your room or whatever it is. It cares how it's moving relative to the whole universe. So something out there, presumably gravity, you know, is influencing what's happening down here. Uh, and and this is a, a quite separate indication that everything I mean, it sounds a bit sort of hippy-dippy stuff, but, you know, everything is connected to everything else, that, that what we're doing, how we move, how the Earth moves is related to the distribution of all the matter in the universe, to put it in physicist language. And then the quantum physicists come along and they say the behavior of electrons is related to, in a sense, the distribution of the other electrons in the universe. So there's a, a more than a hint here of something deep and curious and interesting going on, and that might very well be the direction we need to go in to uh, get the the underlying thing that that we don't yet understand. Um, you talked earlier about the many worlds interpretation, which I've always liked simply because when a, when my favorite sports team loses a very close yeah. contest, I can always say, OK, in some other universe it won. Uh, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, uh, what has been the history of how the physics community has viewed the many worlds interpretation? It's, it's very curious because um, people who have heard of this uh, probably know the name of Hugh Everett, who uh, got the idea quite independently of anyone else in the 1950s. And uh, he, he worked on a version of it for his PhD thesis um, and it was published. But he went off. Um, he was very interested in, uh, in complicated um, mathematical stuff, which is disarmingly called games theory, which is, is actually the theory of warfare you know, and, and, and working out um, how to deal with, in those days, nuclear threats and perceived nuclear threats. And he went off to work on classified uh, stuff and he's kind of disappeared appeared from the science community because of his other interests and so uh, the idea wasn't taken up very much for, for quite a long time and what he didn't know was that actually uh, Erwin Schrodinger who's one of the pioneers of quantum physics and and famous for his his cat uh, in a box paradox story um, that he'd also come up with a, a version of this this idea that you never have this collapse of a quantum system into a state according to probabilities that all the states exist at the same time and it was not until much later that um, people became interested and, and the idea became promoted um, particularly in the context of quantum computing uh, because the, the, the something's a, a very very hot topic now you know and something that that I, I followed as a very esoteric branch of quantum physics 20 30 years ago um, if you can use this superposition of, of states this superposition of particles you can make very powerful computers and we're just starting to hear stories about this there are rumors about what IBM's doing and what Google's doing and and all kinds of stuff like this but the the, the, the nub of it is that if you've got um, a, a quantum system that is uh, in a state where an electron which can point up or down you can think of that as your switch your on off your binary yes no one zero um, but in a quantum computer because of superposition it can in a sense it can be both at once and that means that you can have uh, many many more bits of information per particle for want of a better term um, and it, it, it goes as, as the, the two to the power of however many you've got so if you have um, three switches okay in, a, in a, a very simple bit of a computer and they're, they're ordinary on off switches then you've got a limited number of positions but if you've got three quantum switches they're, they're called qubits from the, the, the bits and quantum uh, then you have two to the power of three switches so you've got the equivalent of eight switches uh, and obviously powers run away very quickly once you get you know two to the ten is over a thousand so in, if, where you would have 10 bits in a, in a conventional computer you've got a thousand bits in a quantum computer which is obviously a lot more powerful and, and they can do other tricks as well so people then were saying well how can they do this and one school of thought is that there is uh, a, a multiplicity of worlds, many worlds, and that what you've actually got is uh, 
a lot of different quantum computers you know in a lot of different worlds and they're all working on the same problem because the the physicists in 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 the different worlds are all copies of you and me and whatever uh, and so they're all interested in the same problem so they're all working on the same problem and, and all these computers in the many worlds uh, are churning out the answers that um, you you can't get at least not so quickly with conventional computers. So many worlds has gone from being, you know, crazy idea to being, well, it's a, it's a bit crazy, but it might be true to, Hey, this actually might be important in the real world. So uh, again, uh, it's not proven, but it's interesting. And it, it's especially interesting because there is a, a possibility. There's a, uh, a guy called David Deutsch in Oxford who, who who works on this area. He's he's pioneered it, um, and he thinks that if we developed a proper quantum computer, a, 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 one that was versatile enough, that we could program it in such a way that it, it would be aware of the other worlds while it was computing a problem in the way I described, and it, it wouldn't be able to say what was going on, but it would you know kind of feel its brain you know splitting into different parts and then coming back together so you could ask it do the many worlds exist and it would be able to say yes or no but um, deutsch hopes it would say yes wow <laughs> just incredible um one of the things that uh, i enjoyed about your book was the different the way you explained the difference between coherence decoherence <laughs> and incoherence in the context of waves yeah uh, the, well, this is um, I, I mean, I, I can't resist sort of playing with language. I, I, I enjoy those little things. Uh, and there's a, a, a theory, an interpretation, which is which is called coherent. Uh, and because things obviously are working together, are coherent. And there's a nice example of this. If you you know that you in a in a, a, a sports stadium, um, quite often you see people uh, doing the Mexican wave, where people raise their hands and lower them in turn as they go round, and that that sends a a coherent wave going round the stadium. And if everybody just waves their hands about at random, you know, then they're doing just as much waving and there's just as much energy, but it, it it's incoherent uh, and decoherence is when you go from one state to the other state uh, and 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 what the people who support this idea and like this interpretation what they say is that in quantum physics what's happening is that for a pure particle like a single atom or a single electron that behaves purely like a quantum thing a quantum entity and it obeys all these funny rules and bell's test and all that stuff but if you have a lot of them together that the information gets jumbled up in the same sort of way so it it decoheres uh, and i so slightly tongue-in-cheek i say they should actually call their interpretation the incoherent interpretation because they start with coherence and the real world then is incoherent and that's why you don't you know, in Schrodinger's famous uh, thought experiment, you don't see cats that are half dead and half alive. <laughs> cats are made of lots of atoms, you know, and those atoms interfere with each with one another. And and famously, one of Einstein's objections to the the Copenhagen interpretation that things only become real according to probabilities when you measure them or look at them. And and he said, well, are you telling me the moon doesn't exist when I'm not looking at it? You know, and the the answer from the, the coherence people, the incoherence people, as I call them, is that the moon exists because all the atoms in the moon are, are interacting with each other and jumbling up the quantum information, if you, if you like to think of it that way. And, and it, again, it, it, it kind of makes sense. I like to think of it as the moon exists because the universe is looking at it. Um, That's uh, one way. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, what, uh, uh, you discussed the uh, Schrodinger uh, cat experiment. Tony Leggett did some experiments, and what were they, and what did they show? Oh, yeah. Well, um, yeah, Leggett, Leggett I, this is something where I've, I've actually met the people and seen the apparatus involved in this. Um, it, it relates to this coherence business because he was interested in scaling up what goes on to the size of something you could feel and touch and hold. And uh, he he worked with rings of uh, metal that were cooled to very low temperatures where they become superconducting. And you can put an electric current into them and they go round. Uh, you'd imagine they go round the ring one way and that's, that's fine. But because they're superconductors uh, and they're very cold, and then they they can be made to behave like quantum 
rings and in a quantum ring you can make the wave go both ways at once it's not not two different waves going round to two different electric currents it's the single electric current going both ways at once round the ring and this is um you know the the the, the strongest evidence against this uh, decoherence idea because these things uh, he had at the time he worked at sussex where where i've got um, some contacts he he was working with things about the size of a wedding ring uh, and i've actually held one of them in my hand although obviously not when it was cooled to minus 270 <laughs> Uh, and and you know this this thing under the right conditions behaves like a single quantum entity it, it does these things that we've been talking about so it's not just you know electrons and invisible things and photons and, and all that it can actually be scaled up to to to, to something of of a, a you know an everyday kind of size um and again this has huge implications. The practical side of his work is it's used in um, MRI scanners. You know, if anyone listening has ever been in hospital and been in one of those scanners, um, they're using this. They're, 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 this is the magnetic resonance that they're using is based on this principle. Uh, so it's it's in, enormously important for practical reasons. And Leggett got um, he got a Nobel Prize and an, a knighthood being British. I'm, I can't remember in which order, but, you know, um, I don't know which ones. I suppose the, the, the knighthood's more, more prestigious and the Nobel Prize has got more money. Yeah, um, I go so- for the money. <laughs> um, you know, one of the things that people don't realize is how impactful all this stuff is on their everyday life. Because you mentioned uh, MRI scanners. We take yeah. MRI scanners just for granted. I'm going to have one in another. Uh, but nonetheless, these things would not exist had physicists not thought about quantum mechanics, developed the theory, come up with ideas, and then saw applications to the real world. Absolutely. I mean, the things I talk about when when I'm talking about electrons being fired from guns and going off and hitting screens and so on. I mean, that is essentially the technology of old style TV tubes uh, and um, semiconductors. You know, when when I the the chip in your smartphone, that's all quantum physics. Uh, And then not not purely quantum physics at the moment but you know the one of the things that always amazes me is uh, when you have gps and and, and you're, you're you're using satellites to work out your position on the ground and you want to say oh where's the nearest pizza restaurant and it tells you those satellites have to use both of Einstein's great theories. They have to use the general theory of relativity because they're moving in the Earth's gravity and they have to use the special theory of relativity uh, because they're moving very fast. And if they didn't make allowance for both those theories, they wouldn't be able to tell you where the nearest pizza restaurant is. And quantum physics you know, comes in to hugely in, into anything to do with computing. Anywhere where you hear the word chip, you know, the chip is working on quantum principles uh it's it's just completely runs our lives these days um i think we have time for one more possible interpretation before i ask you what you're planning on doing next which is how i usually end these interviews so what is the consistent histories interpretation consistent histories is is kind of um uh, it says that that we don't know what ever happened okay we we can only know where we are now and this is it, it sounds like um philosophy but what you what you say is that there are instead of saying there are many worlds which could exist you say there are many ways in which we might have got to the state we're in today okay so if you look at the, the the fossils and you say, oh, look, there are these fossils and these fossils are consistent with the idea that there were these big creatures called dinosaurs around, you know, 100 million years ago or whatever it might be. But you can't actually say that there were dinosaurs around. OK, it, it's not. But it's, it's a bit more than that in terms of philosophy, the, the, a bit more than that rather than what the philosophers might say you can actually put equations into it and this is what Stephen Hawking did in one of his um, major pieces of work which the public doesn't really know much about he tried to explain the the big bang that we were talking about the beginning of the universe in terms of consistent histories and instead of starting out by saying I'm a physicist. I know what the equations of physics are. Let's start with a big bang and calculate how we get to be where we are today. Well, if you do that, you find masses of possibilities, you know, many worlds in another kind of sense, different things that could happen to a big bang. Why would it come out to be like ours? 
But if you start with where you are today and kind of work backwards, being consistent, then you get back to something and you can say, oh, this must be how the universe began in order for the consistent path to be followed to lead to us. I hope that makes some kind of sense. Um, so it, it's it's a, a way of looking at the world which is based on the fact that we're here now and what we can see around us, um, but it's not just starting from the bottom up. It's starting from the top down, if you like. Um, John, I just want to say that I've enjoyed this interview almost as much as I enjoyed reading your book. And that's, you. <laughs> that's saying a lot. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, I'm sure that you have other plans in the future. What I always do is I conclude the interview by, first of all, asking how the listeners can get in touch with you. Uh, well, I'm I'm on Facebook. That's probably the easiest way. I'm just on there as me, and and uh, I've got a, a blog which is almost dormant called John Gribbin Books, uh, which you could find with a search. Uh, and uh, it, it, I'm always interested in people giving me feedback and telling me what's going on with their lives. Yeah, one of the things that I've always found about people who are related to academics is that they're much more interested in contacting people and answering their questions than, say, politicians. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'm a big I fan of right. academics, being one myself. And finally, <laughs> um, what other projects do you have on the horizon that the listeners might be interested in? Well, I've got one. I, I do a lot of work with my wife and, and we've got a book coming out, which is completely different. Um, but next next spring is a book about the it's it's the history of the idea of evolution, which is it's not quite as dull as it sounds. But it, it goes back to the ancient Greeks and obviously up through Darwin in the 19th century. And then what's happened in the 20th century. That's a much bigger book. And then because Six Impossible Things has um, been fairly well received, you know, as, as, as this discussion testifies, our publishers are keen for me to do another short book, but I'm not allowed to talk about it yet. But there, there will be another short book in a year or so. Uh, well, John, I certainly hope if it's anything related to math or physics that you send me a copy so I can. Absolutely. OK, will do. No Terrific. John, take care. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Sure. Bye.